and that's as our purpose. Um, our purpose as a congregation is to exalt God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to establish and edify a caring community of believers, to equip believers for effective ministry, and to extend the kingdom of God into Montgomery County, the state of Indiana, and throughout the world in which we live. Now, we look at this as being our constant direction that we feel that we should be moving in. If we are moving as a congregation, and lots of congregations stop, you know, they say, this is our purpose, but then they stop where they are. But if we're moving as a congregation, we're ex describing this as being the constant direction that we should be moving in. And, and like, if you're moving in a direction on this earth, it would be, that's what's on the horizon. It's always on the horizon. It's always the direction that we're moving in. It's always where we're going. Now, as as I said, in uncovering the values of harvest over the 18 months here, I, I really see that what sets harvest apart in a lot of ways, what's important to harvest as a body is that we seek to follow Christ under the authority of the scriptures. And we seek to apply God's truth to our daily lives. And that we seek to walk in prayerful dependence on God in what we do. And that we seek to do ministry by the body, have ministry done by the body at harvest, and to do all this in the context of relationship. You know, that doesn't make getting from here to our constant direction a straight line. Because what's important to us, you ever had people that you travel with, some people like to take the back roads. Some people, you know, maybe one person in your in in your spouse couple is like, oh, I wonder what that is over there. Let's go see what that is. That's the way they choose to get somewhere. Well, the way that we choose to get where we're going is by a certain path, and this is the path that's important to us as a body. You know, it takes something to read and to hear from the scriptures that this is who God is. This is what God describes as being right. This is what God has described as being wrong. And no matter what the culture says to say, well, that's God's word, and that's our authority, and that's what we'll stand on, no matter what the pressure. That takes a lot to value that and to stick with it. It takes a lot to read God's word and realize, wow, God wants me to do this. God wants me to be about this. God God desires this for me from my life. I'm going to apply this to my life. You know, when we seek to have the ministry or, or to walk in prayerful dependence, that means we want to bathe things in prayer. We want to hear God say yes or no to things. You know, I was reading recently that Nehemiah, Nehemiah prayed. If you remember, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king that that led a contingent back to Israel from Persia in order to rebuild the wall. From the time that Nehemiah heard about the need in Jerusalem to the time that he spoke to the king was six months of prayer. And then he finally was able to speak to the king about it. And then from the time that he spoke to the king to the time that he got to Jerusalem was, to pick, was another three months of prayer and preparation. You know how long it took to rebuild the wall? One month. Nine months of prayer and preparation. One month of building. 
And that's how God works. And that's how we want to work as a body. That's what's important to us. You know, it's a different path to say we're going to have the ministry done by the body. Okay? We have a member of our body setting up projectors and things. And part of them ends up on a piece of wood. And that's okay. You know, we, we desire to, to do the ministry for each other. We, we want to help each other out. And you know what? When, when it's, it's Joe Schmo from the body doing things, it maybe ends up a little bit messier than somebody that we hire from outside. Right? But that's what's important to us. It's, it's, it's important to who we are. Um, you know, and we want to do things in the context of relationship. And, and that's, that's part of why our vision, the vision shaking through these values and relationships speaks to this even more so, you'll see, uh, when you get to, like, the vision of this. But this is the harvest way of doing things. In getting from here, in moving the direction of our purpose as a church, this is, the, this is what we believe to be the harvest way of getting there. And, and you run five years from now, three years from now. I don't know what it will take. But you run moving in that direction, in that way, through that. And, and what we believe is leadership that gives us as a vision for the future is that of being harvesters, being on gospel mission in their daily lives and discipling the men of harvest. You know, for instance, speaking of, you know, the harvesters being on gospel mission in their daily lives, that's according to our values. It doesn't fit our values to say, okay, so we're going to, like, have these events where we corral a lot of people here and we show them something on the screen. It fits our values to work by personal relationship. It fits our values that the body of Christ is doing the ministry. Well, you know what that means? That means helping the body of Christ understand the gospel. Helping the body of Christ to fully embrace the gospel, to know who they are in Christ, to know, to get to where they are setting Christ apart as, as Lord in their hearts and that they have a hope in him and that they always have, are ready to give a defense for that hope that they have. And that's what 1 Peter 3.15 talks about. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart always being ready to give a defense for the hope that you have. We want to put harvest people in a place where they're, they have a hope in Christ and they're ready to give a defense for their neighbors. And that takes time to get us there. It takes time to know fully as a body, this is who we are in Christ. And I'm living out of that. And I'm ready to share it. You know, it's not about going door to door. It's not about, okay, everybody take your 10 tracks and make sure you hand these out to the it's not about that. But this is what we're talking about with harvesters being on gospel mission. And we fully believe that um, God wants us to be discipling men at harvest. Does that mean women go and disciple? No, not at all. But, but I firmly believe that when you get the men being discipled and discipling one another, wives start to get discipled as well. Children start to get discipled. Single people start to get discipled. Okay? Um, it's a fact of life. It's the way God's wired us. That doesn't mean that we are going to be ignoring women. Speaking of women, somebody said, hey, 
women are invited to come help with these books too. And I said, yes, absolutely. So women, please, if you're available and able to help this afternoon, meet in the back corner there. But um, I believe that God has laid this idea of being, of, of the need for discipling men. God has laid this on our hearts because it's, it's who we are and it's who our community and our, it's what our community and our families need. Also, it's being on gospel mission is what our community and our families need. God has got us on a journey together. God laid on my heart long ago to preach through the Gospel of John. And I'm finding many churches and many men of God in Crawfordsville being drawn to discipling men together. I believe that, you know, the question that we have in vision uh, setting is, where does God have us going? It's not, you know, how do we change, move this ship and go somewhere new? Where does he have us going? And how do we prepare to get there? Ultimately, this is about what God will do among us. And like I said, he doesn't work in these ways except in answer to prayer. Be praying for us as a body. Be praying for us as leadership. In July this month, we'll be getting together to hammer out ideas of how do we know when we've gotten there? What are specific things? that we believe God wants to do to have us as a church on gospel mission, to have us as a church set up so that we are discipling men. How do we set goals between now and then? And we, and, and we want to be sharing those with you in the future too and be getting feedback and, and arriving at many of those things together. I want to encourage you to come and join us for prayer on Wednesday night during the summer when we're doing it. Um, you know, our focus in prayer this summer is really in wanting to get to where God has for us to be as a congregation. So like I said, uh, with that said, I, we're introducing the Gospel of John this morning. Um, just to share with you a little bit about John. John is considered one of the twin towers of the New Testament. <clears throat> Along with the book of Romans, John is considered one of the twin towers. What this means is that, and I quote a commentator here, the gospel of John penetrates more deeply into the ministry of God's revelation in his son than the other gospels, and perhaps more deeply than any other biblical book. So what, a, what, is, what better place is there for us to start on this journey, being on gospel mission, and getting at the heart of who is Christ, who is the heart of the gospel. You know, there's a degree to which we feel comfortable, uncomfortable with this, uncomfortable with getting close to who Christ is. We don't measure up to somebody who's perfect all the time, at all. I don't measure up with somebody that's perfect 10% of the time. You know, um, I uh, spent my birthday driving in a car, which is all right, but it was my 40th birthday. That's way too much time to think. Um, but uh, many of you uh, heard or aware that you know our transmission went out halfway down to 
to Hilton Head and, and it went out in a town that like has no rental cards big enough for a family of six and stuff like that. So I now have one of those vacation stories that many of you guys have. Um, but, you know, the next day, it's my birthday, and, and we're driving, still driving. And um, so my wife says, so how's your birthday going? And um, I said, uh, and I quote, um, I've had birthdays in third world countries in over 100 degree temperatures that have been better than this one. A um, little too late, I kind of look over and said, but of course it makes it much better since I'm sitting next to you. <laughs> it was too late. Um, we were both having a bad day at that point, I guess, but no. Um, following me is going to make you a grouch at times that says the wrong thing most of the time. Following Jesus is a different story. Following Jesus will bring life to your life. It will bring life to your life. As we look at discipling men, as we want to develop that as a congregation, it's not about following a person. It's about connecting someone to Christ about learning how to follow Christ, to bring life, greater life, more life, what is described as an eternal type of life to that person. The main idea that we want to get across this morning as we just introduce the Gospel of John is that the Gospel of John can bring life to its readers through their belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the verses that we're looking at this morning are just two verses, and they're verses 30 through 31 of John 20. And in it, John summarizes, this is why I wrote this, basically. This is why I went to this effort. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, let's get a little bit just introductory stuff. That's what a lot of today is. This, the writer of the Gospel of John is the Apostle John, the, a man that walked with Jesus very closely for three days. Let me read for you about the person of John. I'm going to read just straight out of, the Easton Bible Dictionary. Part of why I read this for you is background literature. Partly is to help you to see, you know, if you have a resource like this, you can find this information too so easily. This is the Easton's Bible Dictionary. It says, John was one, probably the younger, of the sons of Zebedee and Salome, his uh, sons of Zebedee and Salome, and was born in Bethsaida. He was the brother of James, who is also a disciple. His father was apparently a man of some wealth. He was doubtless trained in all the ordinary education of Jewish youth. When he grew up, he followed the occupation of a fisherman on the Lake of Galilee. When John the Baptist, not John who wrote the, the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist began his ministry in the wilderness of Judea, John, the apostle, with many others gathered around him 
and were deeply influenced by his teaching. There he heard the announcement, Behold the Lamb of God. And in, on that invitation of Jesus, on the invitation of Jesus, he became a disciple of Jesus. He became one of the innermost. He was a disciple whom Jesus loved, he describes himself as. In zeal and intensity of character, he was called the Son of Thunder. At the betrayal, he and Peter followed Christ from afar, and while the others took off hastily. At the trial, he follows Christ into the council chamber, into the praetorium, into the place of crucifixion. To him and Peter, Mary first tells of the resurrection, and they are the first to go and see what her strange words mean. After the resurrection, he and Peter again return to the Sea of Galilee, where the Lord reveals himself to them again. John remained apparently in Jerusalem as a leader of the church there. He appears to have retired to Ephesus, but at what time is unknown. The seven churches of Asia were the object of his special care. His, he suffered under persecution and was banished to Patma, an island. But he again returned to Ephesus, where he died probably about A.D. 98, having outlived all or nearly all of his friends and companions. Now, John is also the author of the book of Revelation, and as well the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And as that description describes, those letters went out as a ministry to the churches of Asia Minor, and his Gospel of John also, as we'll talk about, deals with a lot of the questions that were being asked by those churches of Asia Minor as well. Um, but we're going we're gonna to learn, um, first off from these verses this morning, something that's kind of odd to describe in an in a, um, introductory. We're going to talk about what's not included in the Gospel of John and why. And that's what John says here. So, you know, I try to have my points fit what the, the Bible is saying. So that's what thir verse 30 is saying here. So our first point is, what's not included in the Gospel of John and why? He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Now these many other signs are what is not included in the book of John that he describes here. John wrote his good news of Jesus Christ after the three other Gospels are written. These are known as what's called the synoptic gospel. Um, synoptic means a sin being um, Latin for same and optic, like seeing things. So synoptic gospels mean from the same viewpoint, from the same viewpoint. And what is meant by that is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke generally covered the same events of Jesus' life. And I know they have different aspects to them, different different um, approaches to describing them. But out of the three years of Jesus' ministry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover much of the same um, issues that were going on and events. John writes with what seems to be an expectation that we're familiar with the other three Gospels. This is why he doesn't give the story of Jesus' life. We're not going to cover the story of Jesus' life which the others seem to do, John's accounts of Jesus' interactions are, seem to be disconnected from each other. He only focuses on particular events. And when he does, there's a specific detail given and to the teaching and dialogue that comes with the event. 
He's not writing to correct what he believes to be lacking from the other gospel accounts. Rather, John is writing within a particular moment in the history of the church and of Jewish culture. He's writing to, to generally encourage Christians for one and two generations away from the life of Christ. And I believe that he's writing to proclaim the good news with particular false teachings in mind, and we'll get into that. So this brings me briefly to discuss here the historical setting of the Gospel of John, of John as well. Um, so as we move through the Gospel of John, we'll be finding ourselves back in Jerusalem again and again. It'll seem like Jesus is always going to one feast after another. But the truth is, is that the events of the Passovers and the Feast of Dedication and Feast of Tabernacles, these were very important to the Jews that John was writing to because John was writing after 70 A.D. And you might remember from um, our discussions in Daniel and, and, and from different places, 70 A.D. is very significant because that's when Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. And John is writing after 70 A.D., probably mid to late 80s of the first century. And if you recall, um, like I said, 70 A.D. is when Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed by the Roman army. So one way that John is different from the, off, the other gospel writers is this. John has a strong evangelistic message for Jews that are searching for an identity without their temple. Um, a commentator, Kostenberger, writes, Seizing the opportunity for Jewish evangelism, John presents Jesus as the temple's replacement and the fulfillment of the symbolism inherent in Jewish festivals. This is why Jesus says to the woman sitting at the well, when she says, you, you Jews say we should worship at this temple, but we worship on this mountain. Where should we temple? And he says, I tell you, the time is coming and now is where it doesn't matter what temple you worship at, but those who worship God will worship him with spirit, in spirit and in truth. John is writing about that specific story, and he's the only one who writes about it because he's writing to people that are mourning the loss of the temple. And that's something very specific that makes John write what he does. It's significant that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, as John records that John the Baptist proclaimed. It's significant that Jesus stands up in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, in which involves pouring out water. And Jesus stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Standing in the midst of the temple saying, And when the ceremonial lights are lit, Jesus calls out and says, I am the light of the world. These are types of significantly Jewish occasions that John chooses to focus on. Another aspect that shaped John was the religious philosophies that had developed by the time of his writing this. Gnosticism was a growing philosophy of the days of John's writing his gospel. And it also, you, you should read his letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John with the ideas of Gnosticism in mind that he's uh, speaking to there. But if you remember we covered quite a bit of Gnosticism when we were in the book of Colossians together. So this is kind of a little bit of review for those of you who are here. Gnosticism, I'm going to give you a very basic overview here. But Gnosticism believes that um, 
if things are things that are spiritual are good. God is spiritual, and things that are spiritual are are good, and things that are physical are bad. Okay, so but God created the earth by creating different levels of spiritual beings, and each one that were created were a little bit more physical and a little bit less, a little bit more bad or evil. And so finally when there was a distant enough from himself, those spiritual beings created the earth and created the world. Okay, that's what Gnosticism teaches, and it has all sorts of playouts in terms of its it's um, good to dive into physical indulgence because it's only the spirit that matters, or you should restrict yourself from any physical indulgence because the physical world is bad. You know, Gnosticism plays out in many different ways, but that's the philosophy behind it. So Christians actually began to take on these beliefs. And we'll get more into this next week. Um, and one of these major teachers in the church, his name was... Serenthus. Uh, and John was personally, strongly opposed to Serenthus. Um, and, and so John is writing his account of the life of Christ in opposition to teachers like this man. Because what do you do with Christ, who is God in human flesh? Well, the, the Christians that had adopted Gnostic philosophy, they had started teaching things like, well, God, Jesus was just a man until his baptism. And then he took on a godly personage. But then he, he released that godly personage before his crucifixion. And that's the only way that they could reason that God had taken on evil flesh by Gnostic philosophy. And so it's significant that John opens up with, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we'll get into that next week. I'm getting ahead of myself. But John is speaking to a, a, a church that is starting to get enveloped, and this, this became what's known as the Arian um, heresy that that really enveloped the church for centuries, um, and it was a few men of God, teachers that at times in the early centuries of the church that stood against Arian philosophy as it started to take over the church. So the whole point here is that John was influenced to write his gospel partly in answer to these new questions that the unsaved world had about Jesus. And he also wrote to strengthen a church that was being confronted with teachings that undermined, undermined the very person of Christ. So we better understand why John's gospel stands out from the others in its content. And hopefully we'll see how it dives deep into the theological discussion between Jesus and his hearers. Um, we'll understand this better as we get into it. But now let's look at what is included in John's Gospel as he wrote to answer the questions of his day. What is included and why we're looking at here. John writes, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So John's strategy in writing his gospel is that Jesus' signs is to use Jesus' signs and his instruction to do something. And the where these uh, the signs pop up here. It's the pronoun these. When he says these are written, he's ref- he might as well be saying these signs that I am writing about. Because if you notice, he says many other signs were done in the presence of the disciples, but these signs are written so that you may believe. So John has a goal of of specifically giving accounts of specific things that Jesus did, and we'll hit on the ten things that John points to. These things are written so that you might believe, as opposed to the ones that are not written, if you've noticed. Um, And these are very prominent in each chapter of the book of John. Just open your Bible up here. uh, Flip over to uh, John 2. Just start there. It's easier when you have the uh, paragraph headings there um, in your Bible. And I just want you to notice the ten signs that most people point to, most commentators point to as being the these things that are written. Um, first off, in uh, John 2, and we'll refer back to this in, in a few minutes, the water made into wine, Jesus did. Later in John 2, it, it, at the end of the chapter, Jesus clears the temple, and then it goes on at the end of the chapter 2 to say, and he did many other signs, okay, there in the temple. Uh, if you get into John chapter 4, you'll see that Jesus healed uh, the official son. In John chapter 5, all of it is about him healing one lame man. Okay? In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the multitude. And then later in John chapter 6, he walks on water. Then in John chapter 9, he heals a blind man. And for For that and the next chapter, everything's referring back to his healing of this blind man. In John chapter 11, it's the raising of Lazarus. And then, of course, we see in in John chapter 20, Jesus' resurrection, and he makes a miraculous catch of fish with the disciples in John chapter 21. These are ten things. Ten, I mean, if you think of all of the miracles that are grouped in the other Gospels, John focuses on ten significant moments. And much of the teaching in John flows out of that. I'm getting ahead of myself, but of, of course the most significant sign of these was Jesus' resurrection. Each of these signs leads to statements or dialogue that further explain the significance of Jesus. Chapters 2 through 11 especially involve these situations in each of the signs found there have certain characteristics. They involve uh, Jesus dealing with a, a special need or a special personality of a person. Um, his signs are performed before the apostles, and there's those who are believing and those who are unbelieving that are present. And um, each sign is shown to have a significant impact on its witnesses that are present. In other words, it closes up with they choose sides. And there's some that believe and there's some that disbelieved even more, basically. Much of Jesus' instruction of his disciples and the Jewish leaders is on the heels of his working one of these signs or, or prior to it. For instance, within the Gospel of John, we learn of the seven I am statements. And most of these I am statements are, 
are centered or are connected in some way to these works that Jesus is doing. Uh, Andrew Knowles says of these I am statements in the book of John, he says, John's gospel brings Jesus within reach of everyone. Jesus describes himself as the light of the world, the real bread, the water of life. These are pictures which make immediate sense. And yet, we can spend a lifetime thinking about them. They are seven occasions when Jesus says, I am this. Each of them takes on an each of them takes an everyday idea which is already special for Jews but can easily make sense to non-Jews as well. Those I am statements that we'll come across are that when Jesus says, "I am the," oh, I'm sorry. That's why I need my monitor. He says, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. I am the light of the world." Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I am the true vine, he finally says in chapter 15. These, All of these we will come across in the book of John. And most often, they will be either prior to or on the heels of one of these ten miracles that John focuses on during that time. And he has told us, these have been written so that you might believe. We'll be uncovering each of these I am statements. And under a unique, an, another unique section of John's gospel is made up of Jesus' instruction of his disciples on his last night. Here we find his instruction in chapters 13 through 17. A pretty good chunk of the book of John is the last night of Jesus' life. And this is all leading up to his greatest sign that John writes about in his death and his resurrection. Within this section, we will sit on Jesus' special, we'll special mission briefing for his 11 disciples. We, as his disciples, will learn from our master washing his disciples' feet. We'll embrace the new covenant that he has made with him in his blood. We will be instructed in his new command to love one another. We will witness his intimate prayer for us as those who will believe based on his disciples' witness. And we'll observe the greatest act of obedience of the Son of God as he models submission in praying in the garden that the Father's will will be carried out rather than his own will, even as he is about to drink the cup of the crucifixion. Now, I was riding my bike in Hilton Head, and um, I was reminded um, and helped by one of my own illustrations. Um, and this is a lot of times what these things come from. Um, but so I'm riding my bike on one of these sidewalks where you're trying to dodge other bicyclists and people walking this way and you're waiting to try to get around them because people are walking this way and and um, somehow just painting a yellow line down the middle makes the sidewalk a bike path. I don't quite understand that. Um, but I was reminded to just keep looking forward where I need to go rather than focusing on my pedals or focusing on the person that I'm trying to not hit 
Um, and I needed that. Because turning 40 leaves you a lot with a lot of questions about your life. And you folks that are beyond that, you're like, oh, please. <laughs> but, and I know some of you get stuck in some of these same places. But I get stuck in questions of where is my family going? What about my extended family? Um, can, can I wonder, um, I, I can wonder if I'm providing what I need to be providing as a father and husband. I can worry about what, if I'm leading in the way that I should or if my family's responding to my leadership in the way that it should. I can be frustrated with the issues that are outside of my control. But I was reminded to keep looking forward and not miss the forest because of the trees. You look down at the pedals and you end up in the dirt. As a way of working, riding a bike works. The answer to the question is to love God and to love those that he's put in, put in my life. That's looking forward. Jesus makes it so easy for us, but it took his life being lived out before us in order for us to be able to see it. My hope is that our time in the Gospel of John will make it easier for us to see the most important things. The Gospel of John gives us Jesus and tells us to focus on it. The Gospel of John brings us Jesus' teaching and, it, and it, that it all boils down to loving him and loving others. He gives us the new commandment and he says, just do this, just love each other, just love each other. And even after Peter denied Jesus three times, he restores, he's restored by Christ by the simple questions, do you love me? This leads us to the purpose of why John chose to record what he does. And it's that we might believe in Jesus Christ. It says, these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John intends that, that what he writes will help his readers to believe on Jesus as the Christ. The term Christ, and we've covered this before, is simply the Greek term for the word Messiah which means the anointed one. He's the one that all of the Old Testament had been proclaiming and pointing to. He's the one that would complete God's redemptive work as prophet, priest, and king of his people. And the term believe is significant throughout the book of John. We can know this simply by the fact that it's used 98 times in the Gospel of John. Right from the beginning, we read of John the Baptist in John 1.7, and it says of John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. With his first sign of turning the water into wine, we read the small statement, this is the first of his signs Jesus did in Canaan, at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. But John will hopefully move us beyond our normal understanding of belief. I hope that we come to understand belief more fully as he describes it as receiving, as following, as drinking, as responding, as eating, as accepting, as worshiping, as obeying, as a being, and as being committed 
Those are all the different ways that John unfolds. What does it mean to believe on Christ? Many of us need to get out of the rut of thinking that believing on Christ is like casting your vote. Okay? You know, it's like, okay, I guess Jesus gets my vote. See, God, I'm on your side. Are you happy now? I voted. It's Jesus. That's the way that we tend to treat believing. Not as eating him, responding to him, drinking him, worshiping him. Also, with each major sign with which Jesus shows himself, there's a conflict, as I mentioned, between belief and disbelief. And you'll see how Jesus uses these ideas to teach that there are only two options, belief or disbelief. I hope that this will, uh, this will be able to move, I'm sorry, my hope is that we'll be able to move through John and follow the plot of belief versus disbelief as it intensifies. In fact, if you turn a look at the back of your bulletin, um, I've included there a helpful outline that really opened this up to me uh, from a person that I read. And it, and it really helped me to see how John points to specific things and the teachings that followed and the people that were present and the conclusions that were come to by those people to intensify this plot of belief or disbelief. I hope that you'll use this outline. Use it to be reading in the book of John. Okay? Start, uh, you know, synchronizing your heart and mind to the book of John. It's going to take a while. We're going to be in it for a while. You might as well read it at least once while we're in it. You'll see the dividing line becomes clear as Jesus' signs become uh more drastic as his signs become stronger and the opposition also becomes clearer too. This will lead up to Jesus' final rejection as even one of his own chooses his side and betrays him. At the, that point, the die will have been cast and the two sides of the debate will see who was right at Jesus' resurrection. And the fact is, as I said, there's a lot of us that need to realize that our weak idea of belief is really unbelief. Our weak idea of belief is really unbelief. And I hope that the Gospel of John confronts us with this over and over again. My prayer is that you'll be confronted with this question. Am I like those who believe in Jesus in this passage? Or am I like those who are disbelieving? I hope that we run into that again. And I hope we ask ourselves that question again and again. Am I like the ones that are believing in him? Or am I like the ones that are disbelieving? Because we'll see it again and again. John's purpose is for that. And his hope result is that we may have life. And that's why he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, we read in Genesis 3 about how we were created with God for to live with God for eternity. 
always set for us to go into a perfect relationship with God and with each other until we chose to sin. When Adam chose to sin, he believed that there was something better than life with God as God intended. He believed the lie that was sold to him as the good news. He believed a false gospel. The false gospel of our enemy has always been held out to us. It takes different forms, but just as Romans 1 describes it, it's mankind worshiping and serving the created thing rather than the creator. That's what a false gospel always embodies. Worshiping the created thing rather than the creator, thinking, I can find life in this. The sad thing is that we in our day and age have learned to refine our intake of what we think is life. Okay, and I'm just going to hit on two things. Just out of the blue, okay, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to take food, for instance, all right? It's not a pitch-in day. Oh, wait. Some of you it is. Sorry. Um, um, anyways. We're given the created thing of grain and corn, and we, we've always struggled with the sin of gluttony, of course. But today, in our day and age, understand something. We've learned how to extract the sugar from the fruit and the syrup from the corn, right? Until we, I heard recently that companies have learned what the perfect mix of fat and sugar and salt is so that it drives our brains, our brains crazy when we taste it. You know, when the hostess company went bankrupt, everybody was like, where am I going to get my Twinkies from? You know, but we have refined the process of maybe I can find life in this thing. We have not only worship the created thing with our gluttony, we as a culture believe that life is found in food to the point that it's killing us. Right? We can admit that. You should see my cholesterol numbers. We've not only, well, of course, this is not as nearly as alarming as what we've done with sex. You know, we've always struggled since the beginning of time with worshiping sex in the form of lust and immorality. But now, like with junk food, we have distilled sex into pornography to where it is killing us as a culture. And I'm, I'm going to get more into this next week. Did you know that 68% of young adult men and 18% of women use pornography at least once every week? What might be sadder is that 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women describe themselves as being addicted to pornography. I mean, if, if we're true to that, those statistics, that's, that's 50% of us guys and 20% of us women. And I need to say, if we are going to be serious about discipling men, we got to be serious about this. It's not going to be comfortable. 
The next week we'll learn from John 1.14. This is why John says, In Him was life. In Jesus was life. And that's why he's wrapping up saying, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. You might get away from believing this false gospel of thinking. Life is found in this created thing. We'll find that this to mean that life has always been found in the person of Jesus Christ. True life has always been found in living in relationship with him. And when John says that by believing we may have life in his name, he means that we are, ret we are returned to the life-giving relationship that the false gospels draw us away from. So the truth that we'll find in John is intended to bring life to where we have settled for what is killing us, what is stealing life from us. And we're going to break right into that next week. And I love how John does that. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for giving us Jesus. Thank you so much for giving us the gospel. Thank you so much for giving us this, this awesome um, section of scripture that we're going to be digging into. Lord, we need life. And that means we need Jesus. We need more of him every day. We need to understand him. We need to live by him. Lord, I just pray that you take us on a journey of understanding the mission that you sent your son on. That you help us to understand how he brings life to our souls. How he can bring life again to our family. How he can bring life again to our dark places. Lord, we need you so much. Pray, Lord God, that you be preparing each one of our hearts for what you have for us to learn from this gospel of John. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.